Welcome. I'm Knox County District Attorney General Sharm Allen. Thank you for joining us on Generally Speaking, where I will discuss important issues impacting public safety with expert frontline prosecutors who are seeking justice each and every day. The District Attorney General's office can sometimes seem shrouded in secrecy. This is most often due to ethical rules that prohibit us from discussing pending cases. Our goal is to pull back that perceived curtain and tell you exactly who we are and what we do in the pursuit of justice, both in the courtroom and the community. Generally speaking, of course. Thank you for joining us for the second episode of the second season of Generally Speaking. Today, we will learn about my office's white collar unit. The White Collar Unit investigates and prosecutes complex financial crimes and public corruption. In 2021, more than $1.6 million in total restitution was ordered for financial crimes in Knox County. And that's just a snapshot of the work our White Collar team does for the citizens and businesses of Knox County. With us for this episode is Assistant District Attorney Bill Bright. General Bright has an extensive background in prosecuting white-collar and public corruption crimes across the state and multiple offices and agencies. For example, he's served the citizens of Knox County as a prosecutor in my office for more than 10 years now. And before that, he served in Shelby County, as well as the State Attorney's General Office and the Office of the Comptroller of the Treasury, totaling more than 30 years of experience. So thank you, Bill, for joining us. Thank you for having me today. It's time for us to dive into our direct examination. So first question, tell me, is prosecuting white collar crime as exciting as it actually sounds? It actually is. We deal with a lot of complex and challenging cases that gives us an opportunity to develop that case by working closely with law enforcement officers. And you really have to work closely with them to solve a complex puzzle. Because every case we get, we're going to have to put the different pieces of that puzzle together. And that's what makes it challenging and exciting. Okay, let's talk about those puzzles. What type of actual cases come across your desk? What types of crime do you deal with? Broadly, we deal with financial crimes involving complex financial transactions or public corruption cases. But more specifically, we deal with cases like identity theft, counterfeiting operations, embezzlements, insurance fraud computer crimes involving fraud, and theft of governmental funds and benefits. If our listeners have heard other Generally Speaking episodes, they know by now that cases can move through the investigation and prosecution stages in all kinds of different ways. Is there a track for a financial or public corruption case? And how do cases come to our office in the White Collar Unit? We would usually send a lot of our cases directly to the grand jury. A lot of our cases involve complex investigations, and we work closely again with the investigators to get all the evidence and gather it all together. Sometimes, however, we'll need to have somebody that will be arrested immediately. Those are usually when there's a traffic stop. So like an example is, is somebody does a traffic stop and finds somebody with a lot of people's IDs. That case, they'll have to be arrested immediately. And then in other cases, that will be to stop ongoing criminal activity. Sometimes we'll have people come to downtown commit a lot of burglaries in cars, and then they'll get a bunch of checks, and then they'll go to the local banks. And believe it or not, in just one week, five people can net about $20,000 in cash just from stealing from that method. So sometimes they'll be arrested that way. 
But because they're so complex and it would be difficult in a preliminary hearing setting to do those cases, we will send those directly to the grand jury. Gives you more time to prepare the case. Yes. And also, General Sessions judges usually don't like us to take five hours to do preliminary hearings and call about 15 witnesses. <laughs> that is true. Your unit takes a lot of time with your cases, both in investigation and in prosecution. That's right. You always have the numbers going, which is kind of unusual because most lawyers get into the law to get away from numbers because they can't do math. In your situation, you deal with a lot of math. What are some of the other ways that your cases are different from other cases our office handles? Well, we have to, like I say, deal with complex issues. So like in some of the cases that I've done, they'll involve theft of funds and there'll be multiple people with access. So in one particular case, the investigators were able to get somebody's time records and figure out that they were the only person that had access to the money on all the occasions. They had stolen about 18 separate occasions. And because it had happened over a year's time and life happens, somebody else who they tried to pin it on had actually been sick for most of the times the theft occurred. So we'll do things like that. We have to delve into the cases to put a lot of complicated paperwork together. I always think of when we go to the jury, we'll use exhibits in Excel spreadsheets to make those complex transactions more understandable to the average person. Because I always know if I throw a bunch of bank records at a jury, they'll never get it. So we work closely with our investigators and that's what really makes us different is we have to put all those time in on the front end to take all of those complex transactions and just make them understandable. Another way that I can think of that you guys are different is really the investigators you work with. Most of our units work with the Knoxville Police Department or the Knox County Sheriff's Department. Right. But you do a lot of work with other state agencies, for example, the Comptroller's Office. We do. Can you talk to that just a little bit to explain what the Comptroller's Office even is and how we work with them in your unit? Sure. Like you said, we work with the Knoxville Police Department, the Sheriff's Office, another unit we work with, the Tennessee Highway Patrol Identity Theft Task Force. And then we work with the OIG of TenCare on TenCare Fraud. We work with them. Explain to our listeners what OIG of TenCare Fraud is. Office of Inspector General. So there's two types of cases that we'll get. One type of case is when a provider is committing fraud, saying that he's seeing patients that he's not really seeing or spending the time that they say they're supposed to be seeing. And creating false billing for that. The other thing is, is recipient fraud. When somebody is not even a resident of Tennessee, comes here and then claims 10 care benefits because they were primarily designated for residents of Tennessee. We'll investigate cases like that and prosecute cases like that. And because you do prosecute cases like that, another difference that I see is you have a different type of defendant as well. You prosecute doctors, public officials, other types of defendants that we don't have that frequently in our other units. That's very true. I mean, some of the times I've prosecuted like CEOs of businesses, I've prosecuted high level officials. At one time, we even had to prosecute a school principal who lost a $100,000 a year job because he was stealing money from the concession stand. It is crazy. Some of the things that you see the very lucrative positions that people are in and the small amounts of money that they will risk all that for. It is. It's always surprising. What types of cases do you actually see the most? Well, it's kind of changed. We used to see a lot of embezzlements, but more identity theft and computer crimes are an increasing problem. We see a lot of those. 
And that's one of the things that we're going to see in the future. A lot of people are using false information on computers to try and trick people into giving their information and using that. The other thing is, is they'll compromise people's credit cards and then they will go out and redo the cards and then use them to steal a lot of money. But, you know, embezzlements have been around a long time. We still, unfortunately, see a lot of those. Do you have any advice for our listeners on how to protect themselves from either identity theft or credit card fraud? Well, I can tell you this. If somebody calls you and tells you that they're the judge or the judge's secretary and you didn't show up for jury duty and they want you to get a lot of gift cards, don't believe them. The government does not allow you to accept gift cards. The other thing is always watch emails or texts you get saying that it's an emergency situation with like your bank, because a lot of times those are fraudulent. Usually they won't contact you that way. If you ever get an email or a text that you think is suspicious, just go to the website, look up that bank's website on the web and contact them independently. Don't necessarily contact them through the text message, because unfortunately, I can tell you, I have been a victim of that myself. One time somebody sent me an email saying that they were about to steal a bunch of money from my bank account. I uh, clicked on the link and I went in there and I signed in. They asked me for my social security number and I said, oh, no, I've just been a victim of fraud. I'm surprised you clicked through that first page knowing you. They surprised me. (laughs) It must have been a weak moment. (laughs) They were very good. You're talking about some of the experiences you had. Why don't you tell our listeners about some of your most memorable cases? Some of them deal with situations to where you just can't understand how people can do certain things to certain people. You know, while we're talking about money, money is what we use to survive and helps us to realize our hopes and our dreams. It's one of the instances that sticks out to me is when I was in Memphis, they used to provide a service for if a family member died, they would go pick up that family member if you didn't have enough money to prepare for their funeral. And this guy worked for that service for the city. He went to this lady's house. She had barely anything, and her husband had just died. He actually lied to her and said that he needed $75 to remove her husband's body. She was so desperate, she had to go out to family and friends and try and raise $75 just to do that. And it was just totally made up and just totally bogus. And to just take advantage of somebody in that situation was just kind of surprising and you know it was kind of a good feeling when we were able to get him convicted in the end some of the other things is some of the public corruption cases have amazed me the principal who was stealing from the school would just go into the concession stand and steal maybe a hundred dollars at a time when he's making a hundred thousand dollars a year just really no rhyme or reason to it one of the more surprising things is what people do with the money sometimes We had a case one time where somebody stole $1.2 million. And you won't believe it, but it's true because I saw the bank record. Over the past 10 years, she spent it at Target, Walmart, and Kroger. Now, if you can just imagine $1.2 million, you spend it that way is just surprising to me. I'm sure most people think, oh, if I stole 1.2, I would go to the Caribbean or... I would hope so. I'm not not sure I would think about going to Target and Walmart as, as my first place. Why do you think people do steal or get involved in these things? I mean, we're talking about how, from our standpoint, sitting here rationally, how crazy it seems that they do these things. But what do you think drives them or what are some of the reasons they do these things? 
Some of the reasons are they do with the other crimes is addiction to drugs. I've seen people who had uh, gambling addictions. Sometimes people have what I'll call spending addictions. They just want to keep spending money and money and money. And the surprising thing is, is when it's your own money, you can manage it a little bit better. But when you think you have an endless supply by taking somebody else's money, there are no limits. It always amazes me that when we catch some of these people, they're actually surprised by how much money they've stolen and they took the money themselves. Some of the other things is, is I've actually seen people steal to finance affairs, believe it or not. And one of the other of the oddest things that I've learned from doing this, and I never would imagine before I did it, is that some people will actually steal to indulge their children. When they're 12 and you indulge them, that's one thing. But when they're 25 and you steal so they can make their car payments on their expensive cars and their houses, it's a lot more money you need. I can think of a lot of crimes in your unit where people lie about being at work because they're stealing from their employer. Lots of times people just don't want to work, but they want to be paid. And so I think about lots of discussions you and I have had over the years about cases and what to do where employees just don't show up to work and lie on their timesheets. That sticks out to me. I remember it wasn't here, but before one guy was actually supposed to be testing water and making sure drinking water was safe. And he lied on all those applications and made up false numbers while he was home watching football. People will do anything for money, I guess is the bottom line. That's what's to learn from this podcast episode is people will do anything for money. We talk a lot on this podcast on different episodes with the ADAs about skill sets. Different units in this office require different skill sets for people to do well in that unit. Do you think that your unit has a type? What do you think it takes to be an effective white collar prosecutor? Somebody who is not afraid of financial records, of course. Somebody who likes solving complex problems and like it's a challenge. It really is putting a case together and dealing with bank records, dealing with time records, dealing with all the records that we have to deal with. You really have to be able to just look through a problem, solve a problem, sometimes be a little bit creative in how you look at things. I never will forget, we didn't know it at the time, but one of our cases, it was important to show where somebody was while they were supposed to be at work. Well, this one particular person was in love with their cell phone. And we got their cell phone records and we were almost able to plot where they were just by the pings they had off the towers. And so you could actually, from the number of calls they made, you could actually almost see them driving down the interstate, going to the airport, flying to Memphis, and then flying to Orlando, Florida. And then on other occasions, you could actually see them traveling through the interstate system, through Tennessee, to Kentucky, to Indiana, to a casino. It's just amazing. But you have to be willing to take the time to be a little bit creative and problem solve. It's a slower pace with bigger payouts on the back end. It's not quite as cops and robbers, guns and excitement on the front end. It's more of the long game. Why did you choose a career as a prosecutor? Because I wanted to serve the public. I came from a family that has always been dedicated through some form of way of serving the public. When I started out, I was a public defender and I learned a lot and grew a lot through that experience. But after a while, I decided that I wanted to be on that side. That side is an important side in our society, but I just wanted my talents to be used to serve all the citizens of Tennessee. Has anything surprised you about the job over the years? 
some of the cases that we've had, some of the reasons that people steal have surprised me. Some of the callousness that people will have towards doing things. People will have good paying jobs and will steal just a little money. And if you looked at it rationally, there'd be no way you would ever think that you would come out ahead. One thing that's surprising is a lot of people who do this, who end up stealing, will lie to themselves and saying that I'm just borrowing a little money. And then yet they never pay it back. It's like what I will say, they didn't get struck by lightning the first time they stole. And so then they're off and running and they will steal and steal and steal until they're gone. Uh, we've, we've seen family members steal from family members. We've seen, I think of churches. We've had a lot of church cases. I have been surprised of that many high people in churches, like deacons and things like that, who have stolen. I will say, I mentioned that brings to mind one case. One of the most surprising things I've ever seen is uh, there was a law firm in Memphis that one of the partners stole about $800,000 for. The uh, victim in that particular case was just adamant, right is right, wrong is wrong, and he should be punished. Well, it went about uh, eight months later, and I found out that he was stealing. Wow. And so he ended up having to suffer from his own words because he ended up going to prison too. I think about you saying the victim being so adamant about prosecution. I remember back to our church cases. In those cases, the opposite is true. Typically, when we see someone stealing from a church, the church has the real problem of struggling with their forgiveness and their values versus we're missing hundreds of thousands of dollars. What do we do? So I can think of a lot of conversations that you and I have had with victims, especially in church cases, where the victims really struggle on what is the right thing for us to do in pursuing justice and trying to get the money back. Related to that is sometimes when businesses are stolen from they're embarrassed or they don't want to report it. But when I talk to them, what I remind them is, you're going to pass on a thief. I know of a couple of instances to where some entities had been stolen from and then they person would get a new job and they would start stealing immediately from the new job. And if the correct action had been taken in the first place, maybe that second person wouldn't have been a victim. I can think of several attorneys over the years that have been stolen from, their support staff stealing from them. Somehow they have the mentality that I'm an attorney, I should have caught this, and I don't want anybody to know that I didn't catch this. You've had a lot of high-profile cases over the years. I've prosecuted everything from lawyers to clerks to trustees to people with high-level positions with churches. It's, it's a wide variety of people. Okay, we have talked about a little bit any advice you would have for people to protect themselves. Have we covered everything that you think our listeners need to know? Are there other ways that we can help them be educated so that they won't become a victim of a theft? Safeguard your financial information. Don't throw your bank statements out. Watch your tax forms. Just be careful in who you share your financial information with. The way that you are known by the financial world is not necessarily your name not necessarily your fingerprints, it's by your social security number. Just safeguard that and protect that. And just be careful if you have a credit card of who you give that credit card to or where you use it. One of the things we find in the identity theft and the credit card theft is at gas pumps. We all want to have convenience in our life and not want to have to take the extra step to go into a convenience store. But I will tell you, I uh, used my credit card at the gas pump a couple of years ago and it was compromised. And I said, 
Well, you know, it's not such a bad thing to walk in there and see the smiling face of the convenience store worker. So I always go inside now. I think back to the Felony Lane gang and how those cases started. The victims were all women who left their purses in the car. What the Felony Lane gang is, is where they will come to town. And what they will do is, is they will target usually females because they think their purses will be in there. What they're looking for is their checkbook and their ID. And so when you're at the daycare center, when you're at the fitness center or you think you're going to leave your car for a few minutes, you think, oh, OK, if I leave my purse in the car, it won't be that big of a deal. Actually, it is because they can be in and out in just a matter of minutes. Believe it or not, we've had people, mothers, who were dropping off or picking up their children at the daycare center, and they were just in there for a few minutes just to walk in, check their child out, and bring them back. And they've been victims of this. Just always be careful about leaving it even for a few minutes because what they'll then do is they'll take that information. They'll have other people pretend to be one of the females. They'll go to the banks. And then they'll commit check fraud. And believe it or not, these guys and gals can get about thirty to 40000 in a week. They come and hit those cars, get those checks, and then dress up and yes. impersonate those people. Go buy wigs, impersonate these folks, and drive through the banks. It's and amazing. get rich. In one uh, group we um, caught, they had 40 IDs. And they're only here for a short period of time, too. That's something that, that I think is unique, that they will actually come into town for that purpose, stay here for a week, make as much as they can, and then leave. So that's something that we have dealt with. Yes, that's their job. But we've worked really well with the banking institution to help with that. So that's another thing that you do is you work very closely with banks and merchants we work very closely with the banks and we try and help them coordinate with law enforcement. And one of the places it's been the most effective is the felony land gang because one of the key things is, is once that fraud is committed, the officers need to know because they will be in and out of that and you will never catch them if you don't catch them in the act. We have worked with a banking group that works with a lot of agencies, including the Secret Service and the Postal Inspector for the federal government. And they will work very closely and coordinate they also have a group where they share the information if they have an ongoing fraud, because another thing we'll have is where groups will come to town and they will steal business checks. And then they will go and get people on the street who are desperate and they will dress these people up, believe it or not. It's almost like they have actors to go into the bank to pretend to be the people who can cash the checks. They'll send them in there and they'll do that. And one of the things the banking group does is they'll let law enforcement know early in the day when this activity starts. So if they see this individual or they see this particular check, they can stop the transaction later in that day or the next day. All great collaboration. That is one thing we're very fortunate here is the collaborative work that everybody does together, law enforcement, banking institutions, our office, we all work well together. Is there anything else that you can think of that our listeners might want to know? If somebody calls you or they contact you and it seems suspicious, just go ahead and report it. Our main thing is prevention. We do a, do a very good job of working with law enforcement to catch all the people locally here who commit fraud. But part of the problem is, is a lot of these web scam schemes and these internet schemes are people who are in other countries. And once they get your money, there's nothing we can do. I mean, our main thing is, is I enjoy what I do, but I'm not going to be too upset if I have a lot fewer cases and a lot of our citizens have not been deprived of their money. I prefer that. And so just be very, very cautious in these online transactions. Computer crime is becoming more and more prevalent. Okay, well, Bill, thank you so much for being with us today. I know our listeners have enjoyed it. And now for our closing statement. 
Unfortunately, we can't avoid bad actors, but we can avoid being scammed. Scammers often ask for money or gift cards, credit card numbers, bank account information, personal information, or a deposit for a prize you've supposedly won. Never send money or personal information in response to a call or to a text or to an email. Hang up, delete the text, and report the email immediately. If you suspect you're a victim of a financial crime or a financial scam, contact your local law enforcement agency immediately. If you live in the 6th Judicial District, take advantage of the District Attorney General's Speaker Bureau and help spread the word. Education and awareness can help protect our community against scams. This is one of the many reasons why we are doing the podcast. Please share this episode with your loved ones. For our next episode, we will be sitting down with members of our DUI unit, Greg Eschbaugh and Andrea Klein. Don't assume that you know everything there is to know about DUI cases. <laughs>